Good morning, everybody. Happy Wednesday, is it today, fellas? <laughs> Welcome to the uh, Security Squawk podcast, where we bring you the business of cybersecurity. I am your co-host, Brian Horning, here with Reginald Andre, coming to you from his phone due to some technical difficulties. Uh, Randy Bryan, he's from Tech Rescue in Texas, USA. Yep, deep in the heart of Texas, USA. <laughs> <laughs> And Ryan O'Hara from Sphinx Cybersecurity. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Uh, Randy, what's the fee? Let's let's give him the fee before. We yeah, go. yeah. So um, our fee um, is no money. Our fee. We want you guys to like, subscribe, comment, interaction on our site or on the podcast um, by by doing that. Also by sharing it out to uh, your friends, family, coworkers. Um, that's a great way. Help us get the word out. That's the fee. Cool. Yep, that's the fee. So uh, today we are going to blow through some topics pretty quickly. Um, try to keep it. I don't know. We'll probably try to keep it to a half hour show, but we'll see what happens. Um, it works out, does it? Uh, Lapsus. So Lapsus, the, 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 the teenage led hacking group, uh, so to speak. And um, we'll talk about that a little bit because I think like, you know, I personally, when I, even when I heard it, I paid really no mind to it. Um, but really talk about like, you know, the world probably has the perception because of what's been in the media that this is like some kid, right? It's not some kid. And we'll talk about that. So um, these steal about a million from an NFT project. So we're going to educate people on like, the security side of NFTs. A lot of people are getting involved in this. They think it's like, um, you know, the wave, the, the, the new web uh, 3.0 or 4.0 or whatever we're on now. Um, you know, this is just another iteration, a new, a new technology, um, in my opinion, from what I've seen so far. But a lot of people are getting involved in it. They don't know really what's going on. They're just throwing money at it. And then Cyber criminals are taking advantage of what people don't know and don't understand. So we're going to jump into that. Uh, we get a look, a look at a ransomware incident, an inside look at that. Uh, we all thought Emotet was dead. They're back. So we're going to get into that a little bit. And then we're going to show you um, a little bit because we talk a lot on this show about like private cyber criminals, not so much nation state hackers. So we're going to get into a little bit about nation state hackers and what the, what they've been up to lately and who they've been targeting. Um, Cause I don't think they get as much play as like the cyber criminals do. Uh, Cause these guys don't really deploy ransomware. Although there have been cases where that's been the case. Um, these nation state hackers usually do other things. And we're going to talk about that. So um, jumping into it. Right away, let's talk about this Lapsus group. So before we jump into what Lapsus has done to T-Mobile, which is a pretty big uh, pretty big feather in the cap if you're a hacking group to go after a mobile carrier like this, let's talk about what I mentioned in the intro here. This Lapsus group, I think a lot of people got the impression that this was a, uh, a, a – some kid in the UK who was kind of doing all this and creating all this havoc. Like I, I saw some new spots about it on TV as I had it on in the background and, and I looked up and I saw what they were talking about and it kind of made me chuckle how they were portraying this to the public as to what this was. So 
I don't care who picks this up, but who is who is Lapsus? What are they really? Let's let's let people know about this group before we talk about what they did to T-Mobile. Go ahead, Randy. Come on. Well, I'm I'm a no. I'll let you go for I'll let you go for that. I don't know a lot of details about <clears throat> them. I know that there was a literal teenager in Britain who claimed to be the head of this, um, 17 years old, working out of his room at his house, and his parents were totally unaware. Um, that was never really completely ver verified as far as I know, and I haven't heard a lot about it in the media since then. But I do know that they've been a huge part of some very, very big threats, um, some very big attacks recently, like T-Mobile, Samsung, and video. There's been a lot. Um, that have happened uh, recently that's been attributed to this group. Yeah, la even last week we were talking about how these cyber groups sometimes can, kind of like the drug industry, you know, we made the joke with the drugs, it's like you have these high level, you know, mafia people and then from there you have their sergeants and lieutenants and things like that. And I still don't think that, you know, this Oxford team is behind, a 17 year old kid is behind this. He may be the one where they paid him to run the software or, or run it from his computers. But I still think there's somebody way bigger than what we think is, you know, just a 17 year old kid in Oxford. Yeah. And that's the thing with these groups, though. It's it's never one person. There's there's a bunch of people behind. So even if that was the leader, I mean, they didn't they didn't miss a beat and they kept moving. So. So is he kind of the Lee Harvey Oswald of this group? <laughs> Could be. Depends what your theory is there. <laughs> hey, guys, as we were going through this, I, I'm going back and trying to remember when we talked about Lapsus a few weeks ago, um, specifically the article that was talking about, um, I believe, their Discord channel. Um, mm -hmm. Didn't they mention at that point that, that they were soliciting people uh, specifically working at T-Mobile at the time? So this is something that's been in the works for a while. Yeah, and they, they these guys... The difference between this group and and uh, the other hacking groups that are out there, why they're a bit different, is they're doing all of the bragging and they're doing all the stuff that usually we see occurring on the dark web. They're doing it right on social media. Um, you know, they're telling people like right on social media who they're attacking, what they're doing, what they're trying to do. There's Telegram groups, there's Discord groups, um, but that's. That's really, I mean, these guys are out there and there's a bunch of them. Um, and it's not just one kid in the UK. They're all around the world working together uh, to try to attack companies and try to attack different organizations for, for different reasons, um, mainly for monetary gain, because once they have your data, they're going to threaten to release it. Um, but the other piece of it is, is there's a market for stealing things like code and how systems operate and all that kind of stuff this 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 information um you know we've been saying for a long time that data is the new gold and they, this is they, these are the things that are making these that true right when people can go in your organization steal it and then sell it to people on the dark web or around the world who want to know maybe about your technology or they want to know how your how your things are set up so they can attack it in certain ways. Um, this is all very valuable information to not only governments, but also, you know, 
criminals, competitors, you know, you name it. So what did this group actually go ahead? Well, I was going to just add to that. I think that there's also something very significantly different about this group. Um, And probably you kind of nailed it on the head. You said people all around the world working together. I think that's different than your typical ransomware group. Your typical ransomware group has this software that uses vulnerabilities. It can live off the land, if you will. So once it's in the network, you know, it can start doing stuff. Lapses over and over and over is getting into networks with things that should have been fixed already, like old VPN credentials and, you know, other credentials, things like that. Like they're doing some things that are pretty much like bread and butter, like 10 years ago, five years ago stuff, as opposed to like, you know, this amazing like software program somebody wrote, you know what I mean? Like that's, that's very um, specific, not specific, but these guys seem to be doing a lot of that, like, like duh stuff that should have already been fixed, should have already been uh, taken care of. And they're taking advantage of those kind of vulnerabilities. And there's a lot of that out there. I mean, you know, one of the questions I get a lot, you know, we, when we're talking to people is, oh, we're looking to grow. We, we don't have the budget yet. You know, now's the time to invest in security because that's how some things like this happen is, you know, you start off small, you've got this, this one technology that you're using for something or another. And then all of a sudden your company grows and it's real easy to forget about some of that older technology. So it's just sitting there still on, nobody's actually using it and nobody's securing it either. And so having that good hygiene and, and, and knowing, and, you know, it's important to have security even when you are small, but particularly when you're growing. Mm-hmm. Yep. So let's jump into what this group did to T-Mobile because there are some details here that I think are interesting and people need to know that the stuff that we talk about on this show from week to week is really happening out there. Um, it's, it's happening to companies big and small. The reason we know about T-Mobile is because they're a publicly traded company and they have to disclose this stuff. If you're not publicly traded, you don't have to disclose this stuff. You probably do, but you think you don't. And, you know, the SEC is not going to come knocking on your door unless you're a publicly traded company. Um, But you have other government entities. You have other state laws on the books. You have contracts that you have signed with, you know, clients, businesses, uh, your cyber insurance that tell you you have to do a lot of this stuff and you have to be making sure that you don't have compromised credentials on the dark web and that you're rotating them out if you do. Um, so let's jump into it because I kind of foreshadowed a little bit there. But um, what did what did, what happened to T-Mobile? What did Lapsus do to that? I mean, they, they basically got on the dark web, got credentials to T-Mobile's um, VPN, some, some credentials that, you know, from who knows where they were leaked onto the dark web, got into T-Mobile's network, uh, using those. Um, then they got into T-Mobile has, T-Mobile has a program for its customer, uh, database called Atlas. Um, then they used Atlas to try to get into the FBI and the department of defense accounts, um, while they were inside T-Mobile. Um, which kind of says to me, like, it doesn't really uh, it doesn't really give credence to the fact that we've got uh, supposedly a teenager at the helm of this, um, you know, because they went right for the De- Department of Defense and the FBI. According to T-Mobile, they discovered that someone was in the network and then, you know, they were able to uh, to mitigate. And then they've said what we always hear right away. <laughs> 
what is it, Ryan? You know what it is. No data was was accessed or compromised. Yep, th right. th that, that spelled out right away. This is version one of the story. Come back in about two weeks, and we'll find out how many credentials actually, how many, uh, how much customer data actually was accessed. Exactly. <clears throat> See what really happened. Yep. But that's basically the gist of it. <clears throat> And it's interesting because right. you see the, the layers of security that, okay, let's just say the VPN password got leaked. Okay, fine. But right. then where's the extra layer that, okay, now that someone has VPN, where, how do they get into the Atlas? Where's the two-factor on the VPN? You, exactly, yes, yes. Right, right. So, and the other thing is, is that one of the things that one of, this one of the goals of this group is to get access to a company like this so they can do SIM swapping attacks, which basically nullifies your multi-factor authentication if you're mm -hmm. using text message and not like an authenticator app or some other form. Um, hackers are going to be going after your, your mobile numbers and your SIM and your SIMs to try to see if they can get into your accounts that way, hoping that a text message comes through to them when they try to log into your account. Um, these are all tactics that are going on right now at scale um, to try to get into your system. So a um, couple things that, you know, T-Mobile did come out and say that when they tried to access the DOD system, they were unsuccessful because there was another layer of security there to get to that information, which they don't believe um, they were able to do. Um, so while they were in there poking around, they got caught. They basically found out that they figured out that somebody was in the network. So, um, again, we've heard about this lapses group being, quote unquote, not sophisticated, meaning that, you know, they usually are detected inside of a network. Um, but they got in. Right. You got to give them some credit because they got in. Um, and now, you know, it's going to take time, money, and effort for T-Mobile to go figure out what actually happened here. Um, and then as we always say on the show, right, it'll be Friday afternoon in the middle of summer, right before, you know, a holiday where they release a press release that says, uh -huh. oh yeah, millions of accounts were accessed by Lapsus uh, back in April. And by the <laughs> way, at the end of this story, it references some of the other recent attacks and, and we're not even a year away from their last big one that involved 40 million customer records mm -hmm. right. Right. right yep exactly um you know t-mobile's been hit quite a few times um i guess you know people are willing to give up security for cheap mobile service i don't, I don't know um but you know i'm not here to say that one organization's security is better than another but it makes me wonder you know that's a lot of hits in mm -hmm. in uh in a few years and you know, going back to um, Lapsus, I think they're, uh, you know, they were the ones that hit the Brazilian Ministry of Health in February of 2021. Um, so they are after data. Like, it's no joke with this group. Like, they're not trying to deploy ransomware. They're trying to get data from big companies that know they have massive amounts of data, and they're turning around and they're selling that. Um, you know, they're extorting on the front end and then they're selling it on the back end. Uh, and that's what's going on. So, all right, so let's jump on to our next one. Um, so this is, uh, this is one we wanted to talk about because simply because we are moving into a world of crypto, NFTs, 
I think we can all agree that this isn't going anywhere, um, at least crypt cryptocurrency or, or uh, you know, digital currency. Um, I think, you know, the world is starting to look at this as, as having a lot of potential. There's like a subset of this called NFTs that people are getting in, involved with. So I guess let's start with um, what's a... What's an NFT? And then so people kind of understand if they don't know. Um, and then what's going on kind of in the NFT world with this Instagram hack that we're highlighting today? So, yeah, uh, I thought this was a really, really interesting story on a couple of levels. So uh, just for background, an NFT is uh, so, so let's let actually even take a step further back. So we've got cryptocurrency, right? So it's it's a digital form of currency that uses uh, blockchain technology to keep it uh, to keep it secure and tied to whoever is holding it at the time to a particular wallet. Um, an NFT would be kind of like the. Uh, object equivalent of that same technology. So, you know, buying uh, artwork like this example um, and having that ownership through through blockchain technology to uh, tie that to your wallet. So it's a digital item that you own and can be tracked back to you. Um, so this one was really interesting because um, the the hack occurred with this uh, Bored Ape Yacht Club's uh, Instagram account. So um, I think that's interesting because a lot of people don't think a whole lot about their social media as far as, uh, you know, the importance of securing it. You know, who cares if somebody gets a hold of my Facebook account? Uh, but in this case, they got a hold of the Instagram account and then use that to broadcast a message as that, that entity uh, and invited people to share their wallets with them uh, it, under the guise of getting, you know, free NFTs that they were going to use. Now, this NFT technology is really, it's really young right now. So a lot of people are kind of jumping on board uh, with this, with the goal of, you know, trying to make a lot of money really quick. You know, th this happens a lot with these new technologies. So consequently, there's a lot of people who are involved in this that don't fully understand how it all works, the security of it and things like that. So when, you know, Board, uh, board Ape Yacht Club sends a message on their Instagram that, hey, we're, we're going to be giving away a whole bunch of NFTs. People are thinking dollar signs. And then it says, you know, open up your wallet to us. So that's what happened. <laughs> and people shared their wallets with the attacker, unbeknownst to them, thinking that they were talking to Board Ape Yacht Club and basically let, you know, them take whatever they wanted out of their wallet. And so that's how this, this occurred. So, again, interesting to me on a couple of levels. One, secure your, your social media accounts. I mean, if people can talk in your voice and, and the people who are listening don't know the difference, they can convince your followers to do a bunch of weird stuff. Two, the the other piece that's really interesting is because of the infancy of this and the, the fact that people don't understand it. You know, don't jump into a technology without learning a lot about it. This is actually a really common problem that we're seeing where people don't understand the technology surrounding uh, cryptocurrency or uh, NFTs, and they are you know sharing these keys that you know some of the keys that that are supposed to be kept secret. You know, these are the ones that give somebody full access. There's there's different levels of these that, that give varying levels of access for somebody to give you something without being able to take other things out. So making sure that you know those types of things. Yeah. Um, and then the third thing that I thought was really interesting about this particular story was uh, the way that the hack occurred. And we don't know much about it yet, although Instagram did come out and say, uh, confirm that they were using uh, MFA on the account. Uh, and quote unquote, following Instagram's best practices. So it's going to be real interesting uh, to hopefully see a follow up to this story uh, of the play by play of how the attackers gained access to the account in the first place. So, you know, again, at 
MFA is, is probably your biggest bang for your buck as far as keeping things protected, but it's not impenetrable. Yeah. And a couple of things that are right. Number one, if you don't know what an NFT is, I don't know if you said it, but it's an, it means stands for non-fungible token, right? So what Ryan described, while it is very similar to what happens on the blockchain, what was stolen here is actual like, you know, pictures they're, they're they're unique jpegs that are tied to the blockchain right you can't just right click on these images and copy and paste them and say you you own it too that's not how this works right so think about it like this i have these pictures that i purchase from artists right and they they some of these could be worth two hundred thousand three hundred thousand the lowest priced one in this story was a hundred and thirty eight thousand right and you know these guys gave their wallet address that contain these digital pieces of artwork and they just literally came in and took them. Um, so it wasn't like stealing like a, like a coin. It was stealing something digital that is deemed to have value. And that's what these guys took. It'd be no different in the real world than somebody walking into your house and stealing your art collection. Right. Um, except with the blockchain, they know exactly who has it. And what what's in that wallet address? Um, now it's on this individual who stole this stuff to figure out how he's gonna wander that, you know, and get that, you know, yeah. through the system so it's actual, you know, fiat currency or or whatever. Um, so that's the interesting thing with these hacks is because they're so traceable. How do you actually move it through the system so you can, right. you can gain tip from it? So. I was going to say the other thing about this that really stands out with with me is when you got to the end and you when you mentioned that the multi-factor was compromised, that says to me we've not seen the end of this yet. Mm -hmm. And hopefully they're not just, oh, you know, change our multi-factor and moving on. I mean, because this that's a sign that something, you know, as simple as if they're sharing an MFA, maybe that account's been compromised. They might have some sort of key key logger on one of their computers, you know, to things a lot more nefarious, you know, or a larger vulnerability at play that that was yes that, that may have been you know a test. Yes, um, so that that to me we're not, we haven't heard the last of this yet because they need to get to the bottom of why it happened. Yeah, and and these these games are using the same playbook. If you guys remember in 2020 when like Bill Gates, Trump, Biden, Twitter got hacked, and it was like a scam saying, "Hey, if you donate uh, you know x x amount of crypto to this charity, I'm going to go ahead and double it." But the link that they gave you was their own pockets. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So moving right along, Randy, um, we're going to talk about this inside a ransomware incident. How amazing the single mistake left the door open for attackers. So um, this article, if I remember correctly, is talks about a ransomware attack by the Black Cat Ransomware yeah. Group. Um, so what did Black Cat do to get into the network to deploy ransomware? Yeah, so th this, this article is um, not very long and it's very, very simple, you know, from a technology standpoint, but it's great because it gives insight into what happened and how, you know, I said it a couple of weeks ago or maybe last week, 
you know, patchings like the unsexiest of all of the cybersecurity things you can do. Um, basically, we had a sonic wall firewall. The firewall protects your inside network. It connects your inside network and protects your inside network from the outside world, basically. Just imagine like a firewall in an actual, you know, like a Chevy. There's a firewall. It keeps if there's a fire in the engine, it stops the fire from coming into the passenger apartment really fast. But a firewall does the same thing. Sonic Wall is a brand. Um, there was an unpatched Sonic Wall firewall. There's actually been a patch out for it since 2019. Um, and they just found it on the internet, you know, probably doing a search. They just found it out on the internet. They were able to get into the network because of that vulnerability. Um, and then they were able to put um, ransomware on some of the servers. The crazy thing is that the on the inside, they had segmentation in the network, which we talk about that a lot in uh, on our show. And that's basically, you know, hey, if they get in, you know, you don't just give them the keys to the kingdom. Everything needs to be separated. And so they were able to get in and they weren't able to get around as much as they possibly could have because of segmentation. But that's crazy because what they got in on, which is an unpatched sonic wall. Um, sonic wall, you, you have to have a professional that knows how to patch it. You don't just go in and push a button and you're all good. Um, so, you know, that is for me, complexity is the enemy of security. And this is a perfect, a perfect example of that. Probably they didn't have anybody on staff to that knew how to update a sonic wall because it's not simple. Um, but bottom line was they didn't update it. They overlooked it or they didn't have anybody or a combination of the above. Um, and so it's a pretty good uh, insight into why you need to patch things and don't overlook even the simple things. So a couple couple things. Um, yeah, the firewall was injected using a SQL injection vulnerability. So essentially what that means is, is that the thing that you think is guarding your network from the rest of the world has a vulnerability that, like Randy said, did not get patched. It didn't. It, it was left unpatched. So they were able to exploit it, which allowed them to gain access to the network. So, in in a sense, they were basically able to VPN into your network using this vulnerability, right? And then once they were in the network, then they were able to use. Uh, they were able to gain access to usernames and passwords. It's not disclosed how they were able to do that, but I'm going to take a wild guess and say that things were just probably not secured enough to the point to where they could snoop around the network and, and, and pick these things up. Um, and then they were able to gain access to, and it's possible that it was just a default username and password that comes out of what's known as VMware. They were able to gain access to the VMware and then deploy the ransomware on the servers uh, that were hosted by this VMware infrastructure. So that's really how it went down. Um, and they were only able to hit those servers because some network segmentation was built in. Uh, but as this article ex explains, it's felt that the hackers weren't really that experienced. So if more experienced hackers got in there, they were probably able to um, circumvent the quote unquote network segmentation that was probably in place here um, so that's, that's really kind of, kind of the idea here. They got in and then even though, you know, 
the group did deploy ransomware, it could have been a lot worse um, if if more experienced hackers were in there. They just got lucky, right? Um, and this goes to show you that there's definitely like the ransomware guys don't care if you don't have full access. It's you know it's however many machines that they see that their tool gets deployed on. Um, this these other individuals got access to this network and they got so far and they still deployed the ransomware. Um, there's other groups that will stay in there for weeks, months until they get that full access. They'll go hire people. Hey, I have access to this network. Can you help me get more access? Because I know if I can get more, instead of encrypting 10 machines, I can encrypt 200, 500, a thousand. Um, and that's, you know, that's how it works. So anything else you guys want to add on this before we move on? I just think the concept of the single mistake is something to, to, to really drive home. I mean, it's something we see constantly, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, a, a business that wasn't doing anything, you know, there's still that single point of entry that, that starts the whole thing off uh, or something like this, where they, they did have some things in place, but that that single mistake left things open. Um, I was mentioning uh, in the green room, we, we had a discussion with a, a prospect the other day, um, they had uh, a system in place where everybody had usernames and passwords. Uh, somebody got let go a couple months ago, uh, but they had some utility accounts just to make things easy for them in their day to day. And while they turned off the account for the terminated employee, they didn't do anything with those utility accounts. And then that terminated employee came back later, used one of those accounts to gain access to their cloud platform and deleted a bunch of their data. So, you know, it's, it's, it's all about that that hygiene and making sure that you're you're keeping track of those things because a single mistake can be a huge huge issue. Yep. We have, right. had a question come in relating to this. Yeah, I'll get to it. All right. So um, we'll throw this up, uh, and the question basically is: I'll summarize and I'll but I'll keep it up there so people can read it. I'll keep it up there for a minute because it's. We can't see on right now. Um, so basically is asking, is it good to update the hardware or, or software immediately when an update comes out? Um, I have my feelings on this. Uh, let's, I guess, 30 seconds. We can go around the around the horn and, and get everyone's opinion on this. So go ahead, Rye. It depends on the update. I mean, if it's specifically a security update, patching a zero-day vulnerability, in my opinion, the devil you know versus the devil you don't. You patch it immediately, but you keep an eye on things to, to watch because that, you know, especially when these things come out and they put these patches out quickly for a zero day, um, there's a higher level of, of possibility that they're going to make some mistakes with that update. So you got to keep an eye out. I mean, I remember Log4j, that was like, what, two weeks worth of update after update after update for a bunch of different things because every subsequent update had another vulnerability that was discovered. Uh, if it's just a, a feature update or something that's not, um, and blocking specific uh, zero-day security, you know, then you've got a little bit of time where you can maybe give it a couple of days and see uh, see how things go. Yeah, I like to let the rest of the world on a feature update, let the rest of the world test, test it for a few days or maybe up to like a week. But you're right, like a zero-day vulnerability, like the ones that have come out um, relating to Chrome, you mm -hmm. know, that they had active infections in progress um, to me that's not the kind of thing that you wait or that you delay, you know, but if it's uh, something that's, that's less critical, you can wait a little bit and then see what happens to everybody else who did it right away. But bottom, bottom line is you, you've got to update stuff. 
you you can't you can't put it off um that that brings up a whole nother question of ease of use you know there's sometimes things are easier like delaying all your patching might be easier but it because that can create problems if it breaks things but you know the easier path is not always the best path you know yeah you can get access to all of your things from the cloud you know like all of your firewalls from the cloud well that means they're all opened up to the internet you got to really weigh these kind of things uh these kind of things out so i say i, I would rather patch and have to deal with their results than not patch and get an infection and, and think about it this way too i mean I, I would argue that there's probably not a software in the world today that doesn't have a vulnerability sitting there waiting to be discovered yeah so this is going to happen no matter what whether it's a vulnerability in that patch for that's patching something we know about or just another vulnerability just sitting in the software waiting to be discovered. Yep. They're, they're all vulnerable. Yeah, we for us, we do critical, but even like in January of this year, there was a big Microsoft VPN update that needed to be done. And after you did that update, it broke it. Then they gave an update to the update and that broke it. It's, it's one of those things like Ryan says, it's I, I, for me, I'd rather have it patch and, um, and just deal with the consequences rather than leaving that vulnerability open. Yeah, I'll just uh, chime in here quickly and just say, you know, I, I like everyone everyone's input there. Obviously, you want to patch as quickly as possible. Your patching program should evaluate every almost every vulnerability it's discovered has a CVS S score attached to it. It's it's if it's ten, it means it's really severe, and then it goes down from there. Um, you really want to have a strategy where it evaluates that and and looks at that number and that kind of dictates how quickly you need to get that patch out but most importantly you know you can't always rely on the world to be your test for your patching so your patching strategy should involve some kind of testing of that patch in an environment and i know that that's like greek to a lot of the world out there especially in the small business world because a lot of small businesses don't have the budget to go buy two firewalls and have a test environment. But at the end of the day, um, that those are the things that I mean when I say the, the world's been getting away with doing IT on the cheap for 25, 30 years. These are the things that need to be done if you want to do it the right way. It's like running your car without oil. Like you're not doing the right things to keep your systems healthy and running correctly. And if you want to deploy a patch on the firewall, that is the that is the thing that connects your whole entire company to its systems and its internet. And that patch brings that system down. It's going to seem like a really dumb idea to not do some kind of testing phase as you're going through that event and you and you don't have access for some time while somebody you know gets that thing back online. So. These are all things that we all need to get to as businesses, as goals. Um, a lot of businesses are doing these things, but a, a heck of a lot more are not doing these things. So um, that's where we need to get to with with patching. Yes, it needs to get done quickly, um, but you can't be doing it quickly on your production environment because we know based on experience that some of these patches cause things to you know, not work, sometimes cause them to crash, and that's a problem. So. Um, so moving right along, Emotet is back, and Andre, you were going to kind of take this one for us, so they thought, what, what happened here? Everybody thought they were dead, and they're back? Is that, is that yeah. the deal? Yeah, so Emotet has been around since uh, 2014, and it was considered one of the most dangerous uh, malware botnets in existence, 
And um, this was one of the first times we saw in 2021 where we saw law enforcement from all over the, the international community where they helped take it down in January 2021 and we thought it was over. Uh, but now it's back. Um, they're essentially uh, doing small tests. And we know from before, Emotet was um, taking, um, having Trojans essentially on the computers and stealing a, lot, stealing a lot of the sensitive data from the victim's computers. Um, if you guys remember where an email would come in and it would take you to like a OneDrive link. And then from that OneDrive link, that's how it, it would spread and download things on the computers. So um, yeah, after 10 months, they're, they're now testing um, on a small phase just to see how it's gonna go. Um, we know that the, the international law enforcement took it down, but I don't think it was ever clear if they actually found the leader or if they, I think they just took down the servers and the operations, but not the actual, the, the group behind it. So uh, now they're just, um, they're, you know, money's probably running out and like, hey, we, let's, let's start working again. Yeah, so Ryan mentioned in the green room, he was surprised at the lack of kind of news around ransomware. And I, we talked about why that could be. Um, and, and, and he said, well, I just get the sense that this is kind of like a calm before the storm. And this is another indicator to me that this is a calm before the storm. When you see this group start testing new tactics, right? Because think about all the vulnerabilities that have come out in the last year. So now these guys, what they do is they automate and they build software that tests IPs and goes around networks and figures out if you have any of these discovered vulnerabilities on your network. So, you know, it takes time to program and build these automated tools. You know, the same like the same for us when we build tools that, that defend these guys that are building tools that go on offense. It takes some time to build it. And then they go into a testing phase. Does it work? And then once they know it works, they deploy it on mass scale. And when it goes on mass scale, that's when, you know, you start seeing big things get hit with ransomware and other types of attacks. So Because they have to be careful when they're exploiting these vulnerabilities. So, you know, when we talk about vulnerabilities in this instance, it's vulnerabilities that they're aware of that haven't been published yet. So they're, they're taking advantage of these things. So if they went out and just, you know, kind of willy-nilly, uh, took advantage of these, those things are going to get patched and they're going to lose their leverage. So right. they do this testing like this to then get the proof of concept, get things tightened out and then blow it out all at once uh, because they've got that, that short window of opportunity. They have a long window. They got the people who don't patch is the second, the second wave. Well, that's the most people. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, you know, you still have exchange server being hacked. I mean, yeah. today, right. So, so uh, moving right along, thank you, Andre. That was a really good rundown of what the heck Emotet's up to, and we'll see what happens in the next couple of months because I'm sure we're going to be talking about it. Um, nation state hackers now. Let's all kind of jump in on this one, um, wrap up the show, because we don't really talk about nation state hackers too much. Um, but this article from Threat Post, um, I'm going to give a shout-out to Elizabeth Montalbano, who wrote this article, I think it showed up yesterday, um, but it talks about APT37 um, and how they use the sophisticated malware to steal information about sources, um, which appears to be a successor to Blue Light. So um, let, who wants to jump on this one? 
Um, and we'll, we'll talk about kind of what these guys are doing, who they're working for, more importantly, um, and kind of give our audience a, a picture of what, you know, government sponsored, foreign government sponsored hackers are doing. Yeah, uh, we, we don't really realize it or we don't think about it. But I mean, really, a, a free press is really, really the bottom line to a free country. You've got to have journalists that are investigating things that are going on. This particular attack is most likely from North Korea. Um, and they're, they're targeting journalists. We've seen this several times. There was a vulnerability in 2021 on the iPhone, uh, known from the beginning of the year, patched uh, towards the middle of August. You could just send a text to an iPhone and then gain control of it remotely. Um, without the person even having to open it. That was also a nation state um, type of vulnerability, and they were using it to target journalists. There's a lot of countries out there like North Korea, um, Saudi Arabia, that are not comfortable with journalists getting into their business and making it known to the world. And so they want to, they want to um, hack the journalists. Then they can find out who the journalists are working with, what they know, and things like that. This particular one was actually um, spread by a, a document, a link in a document that's got all the right looking icons and all the right looking URL things, but you click on it, that downloads a payload to your computer. Um, next thing you know, they've got a foothold um, in your computer. So, you know, this is pretty nefarious stuff, um, if you ask me. So, yeah, and it, it's wild, right? What you just, like all the stuff you said there is like wild because. And I don't know if I would have had this perspective if I haven't dealt with the media as much as I have. But, like, you know, I've talked to journalists for hours, right, for a article that I'm quoted in for two sentences, right? So, like, just to think about the amount of information that they intook for me on that phone call, right, right to write three sentences in their article, Um is it, you know, you have to understand that perspective to understand how much information a journalist could potentially have if they're talking to, you know, if their beat is writing for the White House, writing for, you know, Department of Defense. They're connected automatically by their job to high level officials who, you know, leak things to them. Right. So this is literally targeting journalists who they know have things leaked to them by government officials. So they're in the know. It's it's no different than if they were spying on the government directly. And that's kind of what's going on here. This also happens to private businesses. This happens to, you know, publicly traded companies where CEOs and, and people who are talking to journalists are being targeted. Um, you know, you're somebody, a CEO who runs a company and you're constantly on CNBC, Bloomberg, all those, all those channels, you know, if you're on there, they know that you're talking to those journalists and they could target those journalists to see what you're telling them about your company or, you know, what's going on. Um, and they can use that to attack your company and they can do, they can do a lot of things with that information. But it is very interesting to me that these, these malwares like this that are state sponsored, we constantly see them targeting journalists. And I just wonder, is that a call to the media industry to tighten up their cybersecurity? Like they're, they're kind of like the, 
the real estate industry, you know, you know, the real estate agents of that industry, right? You know what I mean? They're, they're, they, the real estate agent handles a lot of sensitive information as being part of the transaction. Um, but somebody's money could be stolen and, and, you know, through a real estate agent's account. And I'm looking at like, hey, you know, top level government secrets or company secrets could be stolen through a journalist. Um, and that's what's going on here. I think they just need to really be aware of that fact and, and maybe have some of these discussions a little bit differently instead of having right. that, that that discussion with an anonymous source on your phone that could have an unknown vulnerability that they're using, uh, you know, as a, a, a spy tool to, to listen to you. You know, maybe you need to have that conversation uh, someplace in a secure location, you know, without any electronics in play. Um, I mean, this we no longer live in the world that we see in, in spy movies where people are planting bugs in, in lamps and things like that. We're carrying around the bugs with us and they're being exploited by these vulnerabilities that these nation state hackers have and safeguard and don't let anybody know about so that they can use them for as long as possible. Yeah. And, and even look at the anonymous source that you mentioned. So just in, that's that's a perfect double extortion. Mm -hmm. They're going to go both to the to the journalist uh, news agency and the mm -hmm. anonymous source and say, we know you've been leaking this information. You work for the federal government or whoever and pay us or we're going to we're going to leak it. And that that would just be you know horrendous. And some of the tracking data that's available just, you know, from things like, you know, again, going back to social media, something that people think is, is just, you know, an innocent little tool. But you, when you start looking at the data that they capture for tracking, like it's not difficult to take and cross-reference some of this data and figure out, you know, oh, we don't know, you know, they were using a burner phone, but this person, you know, was in this location at the same time as this call. I mean, it's not that difficult to figure out, you know, even using tools that are available to the average consumer. And I think we might have mentioned this on the show the last time, and I'm going to try to wrap up with this thought. But in the spirit of our friend, um, you know, things have changed, right? And what people need to understand is Microsoft Office M365, O365, that's not your granddad's Microsoft Office. There's a whole thing going on behind the scenes with Microsoft Azure and how your employees and the, and the people that work for your company are authenticating and being licensed to use these apps that I don't think most of the world even understands. You're, you're essentially joining without knowing it because you just need to buy Office. You're joining the Microsoft Cloud ecosystem. And there's a there's security that's that's kind of comes along with this that a lot of people just aren't aware of. Um, and all of this stuff is now on your device. They're making it very easy. They want you to use the phone. They want you to use these apps on your phone. They want you to have OneDrive, SharePoint. They want you to be able to access all of these things from your phone. And if you're not managing these phones correctly, if you're still letting employees use their own phones to access your stuff, this is the type of malware that lives out there that is going to be able to allow nation states and other criminal hackers to get into your Office 365. And in the, in the very near future, I think the rest of the world is going to understand what I'm saying right now, because as people uncover what's really underneath the hood of M365 and Azure, people are going to be blown away to realize how much all this stuff is tied together and how access through 
one account, meaning your office programs, led to access to your email, all the files that you store in OneDrive now because you thought this stuff was just easy and convenient. And now you've been hacked and you just realized everything you've exposed yourself to. That's what's going to happen in the future, guys. So, and I know you're on board with me on this one, Randy, with the phones. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it. I mean, it, it's really, that's, that's the, that's the biggest thing that I read in this thing was they were able to put malware, embedded malware to steal the API keys that are used to authenticate you into the Microsoft cloud. And this is a big deal. This is a big exploit that a lot of security researchers are looking at where Microsoft, you log into Microsoft and it puts cookies on your phone, on your computer. And if you're still active in that session or you don't close out that session or it doesn't kill itself properly, hackers can be in your account at the same time by just this thing called cookie stealing. Um, and it's it's very easy to do if you have malware. The minute you log into something successfully, you have these these cookies on your system, and there's malware that steals those cookies and now puts it on my system. And now Microsoft thinks I'm you, um, and it doesn't ask me to authenticate. It just assumes that I'm you, and I can just freely move about your email and whatever else you have in the Microsoft ecosystem. So that's the reality of it. Anything else you guys want to add before we end? Nope. Uh, we're, we're really timely on that half hour target you shot for. Hey, <laughs> we're only 19 minutes over. So, all right, guys, thanks for your input. We'll see everyone on the next episode next week. Take care, everyone. Have a good one. See y'all later. Bye. -bye.